Uh, we're going to be there tonight as we continue our uh, Lenten series, looking at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And so uh, the first Sunday of this seven-week series, we looked at Christ's word of affection. And then last week, we looked at the word of anguish. And now this week, we are going to be looking at the word of contentment. Um, we will end this seven-week series on Easter Sunday when we look at the word of salvation that Christ speaks from the cross. And so if you've missed any or you are out in the weeks ahead, I hope that you'll take a chance uh, to go back and, and listen. One of the reasons we wanted to do this is because we have, just, we have such a tendency, uh, unintentionally I believe, to dehumanize Christ when we see him on the cross. But as we wrestle with what he says, we, are, we give ourselves permission maybe to glimpse him in his humanity. And it's reassuring because we only know how to relate to each other as human beings. And that's the beauty of the incarnation is it gives us a chance in some way to relate to Christ as human. And so when we hear these words from the cross, we are given a better opportunity to connect with Christ as he's hanging there paying the penalty for our sins. One of my absolute most favorite short stories of all time is from Leo Tolstoy and it's called How Much Land Does a Man Need? And in this story, uh, Pahom, who is a peasant, is enamored with this idea that if he could just get more land then he would finally be content, that his family would be provided for and he would finally be able to enjoy his life. And so the, the story unfolds with different opportunities, different things presenting themselves. And then in the latter part of the story, Pahom runs into a group of people called the Bashkers who offer him the deal that he has been longing for. This, these people say that they will give Pahom all the land he can mark out in a day for the small price of 1,000 rubles. Now, Pahom already has enough money set aside, and so he is enamored with the idea that this is the deal he's been waiting on. This is his chance to secure enough land that all of his needs and wants and desires will be met, and he can finally find contentment. But here's the catch. You start at one spot at sunup. You have until sundown to take a little spade with you and mark as much land as you can cover. But if you do not make it back to the spot where you started your morning, then you lose all of your money to this group of people. And so Pahom is thrilled. So he goes to bed early the night before he is to take off to mark his land. And when day breaks, he and his servant take off at a breakneck pace across the terrain. And they are mark, he is marking feverishly all this land, all this land. And he finds themselves, and they find themselves at the foot of a hill in the waning moments of daylight and Pahom started at the top of the hill and so abandoning all care for himself or his servant Pahom sprints up to the top of the hill and just before the sun sinks below the horizon he stretches his hand out and touches the place where the day started and this is how Tolstoy ends the story Pahom was dead his servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Pahom to lie in and buried him in it Six feet from his, head to his, from his head to his heels was all he needed. And it's a cautionary tale about the lack of contentment that can drive us in our life. This thinking of, if I could just get what's next, if I could just get a little more, then I would be content. 
And if we're not careful, if we begin to look outside of being restored to God, if we look outside of our restored relationship with God to try to find true, lasting contentment, we will either proverbially or sometimes in a very extreme case, actually physically end our lives pursuing contentment that cannot be found. And so tonight when we look at Christ's words from Luke 23, 46, it's a call for us to find contentment in being restored to the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful. We are grateful that we can find contentment and we can find rest. And we live in a world and in a society that seems to always be asking us to be dissatisfied with what we have. There's always a newer model. There's always an update. There's always something that we don't have. And it creates in us a yearning and a desire to possess whatever that thing may be. And we think if we could just lay our hands on it, then we would be content. Then we would be happy. And so, Father, tonight as we look at Christ's words from the cross, will we be challenged, will we be confronted, and will we ultimately find comfort and rest in the word of contentment that he spoke to you? And would we find ourselves committing our spirit to your hands and trusting that in your hands they are safe, we are safe, and we are content. In Christ's name, amen. Luke, in his gospel, records this, and I'll actually read in, uh, start in verse 44 and read through 46. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Throughout this seven-week series, for the most part, with every saying of Christ that we hear from the cross, we're always going to find ourselves confronted with a challenge and then called to a comfort or called to a moment of resting before the finished work of Christ. And so we open tonight with the challenge that is before us, which is to be content with being restored to the Father. Now, if you remember all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, we read the story of creation. We read how God speaks everything from the smallest atom to the furthest reaches of the cosmos into existence. Over the course of six days, all that would be created was created. And what was the crowning achievement of the entire creative process? It was man and woman who were created in the image and likeness of God. And after this crowning achievement on the sixth day, what does God do on the seventh? How does God celebrate completing creation? Genesis 1:31 through 2:3 tell us how God responded. Genesis starting in verse 1, chapter 1 verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation." Once the work was done, our God and Creator rested, content in His completed work. And so it is that Christ, in this His seventh saying, on the sixth day of the Jewish week, just before the Sabbath, speaks His last, and He says, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. And what do we find the Son doing? 
We find the Son doing the same thing that the Father did. He is resting from His completed work of redemption. He is now content to be restored to the hands of the Father. And so when we read Jesus' final words from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, He is at rest and He is content because the work of redemption is complete. And just like the Father sat back on the seventh day and surveyed all that He had done and it was very good and He rested, so it is that Christ, as He gets ready to draw His last breath and lay His life down, is content and at rest because the work that he has done is very good. But notice, Christ doesn't ask for his throne back. Christ doesn't say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, now give him my throne back. He doesn't ask for the kingdoms of the world that Satan had tempted him with earlier. He didn't say, now I want all those things that I denied myself earlier. Now, God, Father, I want you to give those things to me. Nor does he appeal to his obedience as a means to somehow twist the Father's arm to get something from him. No, the Son finds contentment and rest in being restored to the Father, period, end of sentence. Jesus' greatest contentment after bearing the weight of the world's sins on the cross, Jesus' greatest contentment was not the worship that he would be due as the Savior. His greatest contentment was not returning to his heavenly throne and to the glory that he had left to come save us. No, his greatest contentment was to be restored to that relationship he had enjoyed from eternity past with the Father. And this is the challenge of Christ's words to us. Are we content to have the Father? Or are we constantly striving, trying to appease and obey the Father so that we can get something other than Himself for our lives? Are we largely restless in our day-to-day living? Do we feel like maybe Jesus wasn't being truthful when he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do we forfeit the rest the Savior offers us because we refuse to rest in the loving embrace of the Father made possible through the finished work of Christ? The testimony of Scripture is that we are constantly having to fight and strive for contentment in belonging to God. Moses in Deuteronomy writes of the challenge of actually finding our contentment in arriving by worldly standards. Notice the warning Moses gives to the Israelites from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 11 through 14 and verses 19 and 20. Moses says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
there is a real challenge. We often think the challenge of contentment is to stop ourselves from wanting more, but there's also the danger of a contentment that lures us to sleep by arriving at a worldly definition of success that causes us to lose sight, not of the God who led us out of Egypt, but the God who delivered us from our bondage to sin. And we can become so enamored and so wrapped up in just having the things of the world that our hearts and our minds and our devotion to God drifts. And before we realize it, we have given ourselves to the worship of the idols of the 21st century. And we find ourselves content, but not content in God. We find ourselves not content in the joy that comes from living submitted, submitted and obedient lives before him. We find ourselves content in everything that only leads to death. Jesus himself warned of this in Luke 12, 15, when he said to them, being the, dis the disciples and those around, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus points and says, don't be mistaken. Be careful and own your guard because your life isn't the sum of all that you own. There's more to life than just your possessions. It's a matter of who possesses you. And so Jesus says, you'll be either possessed by your possessions or you'll be possessed by the Father, and whichever one you give yourself to will determine the way that you spend your life. It will determine where you go for peace and rest and joy and comfort. And so Jesus says, take care and be on your guard because this is not all that life is made of. Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 7 and 10 through 12, when he says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul, in one of his last letters before he dies at the hands of the Roman Empire, encourages Timothy to be godly and be content. And it's great gain. And to not give himself over like so many had to pursuing worldliness and forgetting godliness, and just trying to find contentment in worldly things. Paul says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Paul says if you will have godliness with contentment, and you will enjoy the gain that it offers you, you will find it easier to take hold of the eternal life that is yours rather than to keep grasping for straws in this fleeting life that we have on this earth. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 5, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What does the writer of Hebrews tie contentment into? He ties contentment in the believer's life into the promise that God has said that he will never leave us nor forsake us. 
What is the one guarantee if we seek contentment anywhere outside of the Father? Whatever we seek contentment of outside of the Father will eventually leave us and it will eventually forsake us. And we will find ourselves right back in a state of discontentment. But if we will be content with what we have because we know that what we have is not our worldly possessions, what we have is a God who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us, then we can live a life free from the love of money. And James writes in his letter in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions could it be that the reason so many of our prayers of the things that we ask for that we ask God for could it be that so many of the times we're not seeing God answer those prayers because really we're praying discontented prayers to the father wanting anything other than himself to provide security and value and meaning for our life and could it be that the reason we so often don't get along with each other well in the church is because we view God's response or God's activity in another person's life as him giving them the things you think would provide you with contentment and you don't understand why God is withholding from you and so you begin to get in fights and you begin to quarrel over why this person has this and you don't instead of tracing the root problem of your discontent back to a lack of faith and trust in God being enough for you. And so the challenge of Christ's words from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, is that Jesus was content with the Father. He was content to be back in relationship with the Father. John Calvin said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And if we're honest, we can all attest to the reality of how the idols of our heart are always working to draw us away from contentment in God. So perhaps the best diagnostic question we can ask ourselves as we consider the challenge to be content in God alone is this from John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel. Piper says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? If you could have a pre-sin world, if you could have a post-sin world with everything that your heart longs for, that your mind thinks would give you contentment, if you could be given all those things and we were to call it heaven and Christ were to not be there, would you still be satisfied? That's the question of contentment we have to wrestle with over and over and over again in our lives. And that's the challenge of Christ's words of committing his spirit back into the Father's hands. But there was also in Christ saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, a call to trust. 
It's a call to trust that in that moment when Jesus spoke of committing his spirit into the hands of the Father, that he was also lifting our spirits to the Father for safekeeping. Jesus' death was substitutionary. I think we would all agree on that. Jesus died as the substitute for our sins. But Jesus' death was also representative. And as our representative, we see ourselves in Christ dying on the cross. This is why Paul would write to the church at Galatia in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. So Paul himself sees Jesus' death as representative. So he will say, I've been crucified with Christ. So it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. So when we hear Christ commit his spirit to the Father, we need to understand that in some mysterious way in that moment, Christ is also committing our spirits to the Father's hands as well. A.W. Pink in his book, The Seven Sayings of the Savior from the Cross, says this. When the Lord Jesus commended his spirit into the hands of his Father, he also presented our spirits along with his to the Father's acceptance. Jesus Christ neither lived nor died for himself, but for believers. What he did in this last act referred to them, meaning believers, as much as to himself. We must look then on Christ as here gathering all the souls of the elect together and making a solemn tender of them with his own spirit to God. Last week, when we considered the word of anguish from the cross, we said that it was the basis of our salvation. That the basis for us being saved is that Christ became sin for us so that he would cry out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if that's true for last week, then we would say this week's word of contentment serves as the assurance of our salvation. If Christ in a mysterious way that we don't fully comprehend, was committing our spirits with his spirit to the hands of the Father, then this is where the assurance of our salvation first dawns. After all, whose hands are stronger than the Father's? And if Christ has lifted our spirits and if the Father has accepted Christ's work on our behalf and is now holding our spirits, safekeeping them until we arrive safely home, then this is where our assurance lies. And Jesus referred to this over and over again in John's gospel. This is what Jesus says in John 6, 37 through 40. And as we read through these These are the words of Jesus. This isn't the words of Paul. This isn't the words of Timothy. This isn't the words of Isaiah. This is none other than the Son of God himself speaking. And I know sometimes we read and we think, well, Paul said it. So it's like, eh, Paul said it, maybe, eh, we don't really. This is Christ speaking about his view towards those he came to save. And I hope it will land and rest in your hearts and give you great comfort tonight. John 6, 37 through 40, Jesus speaking says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last 
day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, Jesus in John 10, 17 through 18 and 28 through 30 says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When you hear Jesus say, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And you begin to understand that your spirit's a part of that. And then you read Jesus' own words about the security that is to be for those who trust in Christ. That the Father who is greater than all will never allow one of his own to be snatched out of his hand. And then Jesus says this in what's referred to as the high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love, love them even as you loved me. Jesus in John's gospel seems to be driving home the point that if we understand, if we can begin to understand all that Christ has done for us, all that Christ did that was in exact accordance with the Father's will to redeem and to save us, it would provide us with great assurance and it would provide us with great contentment. Because the words of Jesus are true. The actions of Jesus are true. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the promised return of Jesus are all true. And when we begin to understand truth more and more, not only at a head level, but at a heart level, it should provide great assurance to God's people to lean in and trust that we are being kept safely even now in the hands of the Father. We are not dangling by a thread. We are not wandering around hopeful we find our way to the end of the maze and into the Father's hands before eternity gets here. All of Scripture testifies that those whom God has called and those whom God has made His own find themselves at rest and content in the Father's hands. But we will struggle to be content with God if we are constantly in a state of doubt about the effectiveness of Christ's work on our behalf. You will never find assurance that leads to contentment if you're always doubting the effectiveness of Christ's work on your behalf. We honestly hesitate to make any of the above verses personal. We read those verses and we apply them to everyone else except for us as if we are some unique case that is somehow outside of what Scripture says about God's people. Maybe we're worried that if we make them too personal, we would perhaps sound prideful. And so I want to read you this illustration from Dwight Moody. 
one of the most well-known evangelists of the 19th century, and this is what he said in regard to assurance. Moody says, One thing I know, I cannot speak for others, but I can speak for myself. I cannot read other minds and other hearts. I cannot read the Bible and lay hold for others, but I can read for myself and take God at his word. The great trouble is that people take everything in general and do not take it to themselves. Suppose a man should say to me, Moody, there was a man in Europe who died last week and left $5 million to a certain individual. Well, I say, I don't doubt that. It's a rather common thing to happen, and I don't think anything more about it. But suppose he says, but he left the money to you. Then I pay attention. I say, to me? Yes, he left it to you. I become suddenly interested. I want to know all about it. So we are apt to think Christ died for sinners. He died for everybody and nobody in particular. But when the truth comes to me that eternal life is mine and all the glories of heaven are mine, I begin to be interested. I say, where is the chapter and verse where it says I can be saved? If I put myself among sinners, I take the place of the sinner. Then it is that salvation is mine and I am sure of it for time and eternity i think the key thing of all that moody says in that lengthy illustration and quote is this so we are apt to think christ died for sinners he died for everybody and for nobody in particular and that's generally how we think of the gospel it was for everybody but it was also for nobody assurance And contentment comes when you can read and you can go, I don't know about everybody else in this room, but that is true for me. I don't know where everybody else stands and how they read and apply the scriptures to their life, but I know and trust and believe that this is true for me, that the truths of the gospel are for me to take and internalize and personalize, to see the finished work of Christ on my behalf. If we never personalize the gospel, we will never effectively share the gospel. You will not share a gospel that is for everybody and nobody all at the same time. Ever. Evangelism dies on the vine when we have such a vague view of the gospel. But when we understand the gospel as something that is to be known, that is to be trusted, that is a truth we can lay our lives to rest in, then we begin to share that message. Then we begin to speak of the truth of who Christ is and what Christ has done because we finally begin to understand it on a very personal level. So when we hear the word of contentment from Jesus on the cross, we hear him lifting up our spirits to the Father for safekeeping, and we find ourselves with an ever-deepening assurance of our salvation. So how much land and how much power and how much money How many trinkets and what measure of success do we really need? If we are assured of our salvation and resting content in the embrace of the Father, then we have all we need. Read that again. If we are assured of our salvation and are resting content in the embrace of the Father, then we have all we need. So let's be a church that encourages one another and that is constantly asking the Spirit to continue to strengthen our grip on eternity so that we can live open-handed lives of surrender for the sake of the gospel here and now. 
content not for what this life can give, but content in awaiting the life that is to come. Let's pray.